I'd like to begin this morning by describing a typical Sunday in the experience of a member of Redeeming Grace Church. Perhaps you and your family arrive at 915 Sharp, 915 Sharp, for our discipleship classes, and there you're met by a, a friendly RGC kids worker who helps you check in your children for their class or the nursery. Then you drop your kids off at their classroom and only to be met by another smiling worker who teaches your little ones for the duration of the hour. After class, you, you go pick your kids up and then you make your way over here to the worship center only to be met by another smiling greeter and yet another usher who hands you a worship guide as you walk in. As you find your seat, you, you notice a couple of guys who wear these earpieces who seem to be especially attentive, strangely so, to what's going on in, here in the, in the room. And you look up and there are screens with, with announcement slides on loop. The service begins and a, a team of musicians accompany the singing of the congregation and aid the church's worship of the Lord. And, and not surprisingly, in, in this modern age, the music is, is amplified through a sound system that's manned by another volunteer. I don't know if he's smiling, but he's back there. Then like, like clockwork, after the singing stops, wouldn't you know it, another smiling volunteer magically appears like Disney World, hold, holding a sign that says, The Gospel Project, and your kids power walk across the carpet, trying to be the first in line to get to the classroom. After the pastoral prayer, a team of ushers take up the offering, and although you don't know where the money goes exactly, uh, you can only guess that another team counts the money, details the record, and deposits it at the bank. This Sunday that I'm describing today happens to be the first Sunday of the month, and after the preaching of God's Word, the congregation takes the Lord's Supper together. There at the table at the front of the room are, are plates already stocked full of bread in the cup, and team, a team of servers gathers on the first row to distribute elements to the congregation. After the service, you head back and you pick up your kids where once again volunteers greet you with a smile, this time one of relief that the pastor has finally finished preaching and it's time to give your munchkins back to you. Now friends, everything that I've described so far in that description, from the smiling volunteers to the strange men in earpieces to the greeters and ushers to the money counters to the musicians and servers and sound and AV set up all the rest, all of that ministry is facilitated by men and women appointed by our church to serve as deacons. All of it. Deacons, in many respects, are like the glue that holds our church together. They're the practical ministry bridge between the elders and the congregation. And as you might imagine by my description, well-functioning deacons are vital to the health of a local church. Guess what? Deacons aren't my idea. They're not the brainchild of a 21st century church growth guru who decided how a church best thrives. No, as with elders, deacons have been operational in local churches since the time of the early church. We learn from our scripture today that God has ordained actually two offices for his church. Last week in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, we saw that it's God's design that local churches be led by godly qualified elders or overseers, men who shepherd and teach and oversee the church. But on the heels of that list, the things that should mark elders, Paul follows up with another list. This time, it's a list of qualifications that should mark godly deacons. So please turn in your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy 3, 
It's on page 992 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, the mere presence of such a list like this, describing the the type of Christians deacons should be, tips us off, doesn't it, of how important they really are in the life and ministry of a local church. If deacons were not vital to a church's ability to glorify God together, then surely Paul would not have taken time to mention them at all. But they are not an afterthought. Far from being an afterthought, faithful deacons are indispensable. Let's read the passage together. 1 Timothy 3, we're going to start in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, I think this is one passage of Scripture where the structure of how Paul wrote this this instruction on deacons actually aids our interpretation of the passage. So here's what I think is going on as far as the structure of the text. Verses 8 to 10 are Paul's general instructions for all deacons. He gives what I'm calling this morning the marks of faithful deacons. And then in verses 11 to 12, Paul is, is still listing these identifying marks of deacons, but he pivots, doesn't he, in verse 11 to talk about two distinct categories of faithful deacons, women deacons in verse 11 and men deacons in verse 12. And of course, when we get there, I'll explain why I think that is. And then in verse 12, Paul once again is talking about something that's true of all deacons. He gives the incentives or motivations for faithful deacons. So my outline this morning really tailors the the way that that structure is, but I'm adding a piece to the front because really this is the only place in the Bible that describes deacons like this. I'm going to talk this morning about also the tasks of faithful deacons. I think that's implied in verse 8, but certainly given more explicitly elsewhere. So the tasks of faithful deacons, the marks of faithful deacons, the categories of faithful deacons, and the incentives for faithful deacons. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of the text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Given their vital role in serving the church, facilitating ministry, and preserving unity, deacons should be men and women of evident godliness. Given their vital, indispensable role in serving the church, facilitating ministry, and preserving unity, Deacons should be men and women of evident godliness. Let's look at verse 8 and these tasks of faithful deacons. What are they? What do deacons do? Well, friends, to be perfectly honest, the Bible says precious little about what deacons do and really not a whole lot about the entire topic of deacons. Uh, These six verses in 1 Timothy are by far the most biblical data that we have on the topic, and this passage doesn't focus in the main on what deacons do. Instead, it focuses on who deacons are. Paul seems to be far less concerned about a deacon's skill set than he is a deacon's character. 
since 1 Timothy 3, again, 8 to 13, is, is this only New Testament passage describing the office. And I'll probably not preach on this topic again anytime soon. I, I, at least I don't think I will. I want us to look briefly this morning, both from this passage and one other, at why deacons are so necessary and look closer, more closely at what they do. First off, we get a clue about what deacons do through the word itself. Through the word itself. Deacon, in the original Greek, is the word diakonos. It simply means servant. It's a, it's a word that's used in both noun and verb forms throughout the New Testament. And most of the time it's used, friends, it's not talking about a specific church office. It's, it references servants or serving more broadly. And when that's the case, the English trans, translations typically translate the word generically as servant. But there are a handful of times in the New Testament where Paul is thinking more narrowly and more technically about the diakonos, about a, an official church office. And at least in these cases where it's undisputed that that's what he's talking about, it's, that word is translated deacon. We know here in 1 Timothy that Paul is, is speaking about a parallel office to the office of overseer, which he just described in verses 1 to 7. He transitions in verse 8 by saying, deacons likewise. Okay, that tips us off. This is an office. Deacons, deacons likewise must be dignified. And then he proceeds to give us a list of qualifications just like he did for overseers. Friends, Paul is here not talking generically about servants of the church, like all members. You know, he's not giving us a, a member job description so much as specific office of deacons. These, this is a specific list of exemplary servants in the church. Now, just like with elders, as we looked at last week, the marks, the defining marks of deacons are things that every Christian should be known by. And I hope we'll notice that again as we go through. But again, these are the marks to those appointed to the office of deacon. So again, I ask, what do deacons do? Well, the word itself insinuates that deacons serve and they facilitate ministry within the church. Whereas elders lead and teach and oversee and shepherd deacons serve. Friends, I think the, the mere fact that deacons are paired here with overseers means that, that deacons are specifically tasked with serving in ways that assist the elders of the church. It, it, and it's really not just that elders and deacons are inseparably linked. Elders here are listed first, aren't they? There's an order to how Paul lists them. There's a, it really implies a natural order of supervision. We see this order here in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Philippians 1.1, the other clear place where the office of deacon is mentioned. Paul there writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's the whole church, all the saints, with the overseers and deacons. That's the two church offices. And then again, there in Philippians 1.1, elders and deacons are joined at the hip, but elders, overseers are mentioned first, and then deacons. Elders lead the church spiritually. Deacons assist the elders in carrying out the practical serving matters in the life of the church. One author put it this way, the purpose of deacons is inseparably tied to the priority of elders. The purpose of deacons is inseparably tied to the priority of elders. In other words, friends, when the congregation appoints deacons, what we're doing is actually deputizing a team of servants to carry out the ministry vision of the elders of the church. 
I think churches have often gotten trouble, gotten in trouble. Maybe you've been a part of some of these churches when the order becomes flip-flopped. When the deacons become the power brokers in a church or, or function kind of like a, a second house of Congress through which the elders' decisions must pass. Uh, to give a silly illustration, let, let's say that the elders say, let's drive to San Francisco. Well, the deacons shouldn't come and say, no, let's drive to San Diego. Right? They may come to the elders and say, hey, listen, I don't know if we have the right vehicle to get to San Fran. Right? Are, you, are you sure that's the direction you want to take the church? I mean, I, I question some of the, the wisdom decisions here. Th- those type of recommendations and suggestions from deacons to elders are always appreciated and always welcome. But friends, in general, the job of deacons is to support the ministry destination of the elders. Now, That being said, don't get the wrong impression. Don't think that deacons, because they assist elders, are somehow unimportant. Far from it. Before we dive deeper into our text this morning in 1 Timothy 3, I want to show you one other passage in the New Testament that seems to give us a blueprint sketch of how deacons assist the elders in serving the church and just how massively important they are. So turn quickly back to Acts 6. Acts 6 is on page 914. Page 914 of the, of the Bible underneath your seat. As you turn back to Acts 6, friends, know that we're turning back the clock in church history, about 30 years, about 30 years in time from when 1 Timothy was written. Jesus had risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. The Spirit then descended, was poured out upon believers at Pentecost. And through the powerful preaching of the gospel, the church was established and it began to grow. Acts 4.32 says that the early church was marked by a unique love and unity, going so far to say that the church in Jerusalem was of one heart and one soul. I love that description. But as remarkable as that unity was in Acts 4, by, by Acts 6, just pages later, disunity was brewing. Acts 6.1 says that the, that the Hellenists in the church, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, lodged a complaint against the Hebrews in the church, those who spoke the native language of Palestine. Because the Hebrews apparently were neglecting to serve the Hellenist widows in the church's mercy ministry. And so the Hellenists felt slighted by the Hebrew believers. Now, at this time in church history, the church leaders, friends, were the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus. So how would the 12 handle perhaps the first major conflict in the history of the church? Did they call in the disgruntled Hellenists and tell them, just chill out, man. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, it was an accident. Did they themselves handle the problem? Okay, we'll we'll take the distribution from here. We've seen this, been there, done that. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? That went smooth. We're good, right? No, that's not what they did. Instead, verse 2 says that the 12 summoned the full number of the church. And they had what amounted to a members meeting. Look at verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Friends, do you see what happened? The church selected seven men to deacon. That's the word, to deacon tables. It's the verb form of the noun in 1 Timothy 3. Now, the scripture here does not call these men deacons. 
But they are selected, it seems, as lead servants to help meet a practical need in the body. Why? So that the apostles, friends, could continue to prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. By selecting servants to address a pressure point within a a subset of the church, the apostles could remain focused on equipping the entire body. They prioritized the ministry of the word while ensuring the proper care of the widows. The church selected seven men and they solved the problem. And guess what happened? Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In other words, friends, not only did did this divided labor strategy solve the problem, it preserved the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The seven functioned like, like good shocks on a bumpy road. They absorbed and they smoothed out the rough terrain so that the church's witness of the gospel could continue to flourish. Now, throughout church history, Christians have looked back at this moment as the blueprint for what would later be codified officially in the church in the offices of elders and deacons. The apostles and the seven were like elder and deacon forerunners, okay? The apostles and the seven were like elder and deacon forerunners. Certainly, we shouldn't look look at every detail of Acts 6 as prescriptive for deacons. For instance, deacons do more things than serve tables, And our understanding of the text in 1 Timothy is that the office is open to women also. But the model for ministry was set in Acts 6. As church history, friends, began to unfold, the apostles' role of teaching and prayer is is transferred, isn't it? It's given to elders. For elders to remain focused on what God has called us to do in the ministry of the word and prayer, we as the church then appoint deacons to assist us elders in facilitating ministry in the body. Just like in Acts 6, friends, our deacons are far from glorified waiters. They are problem solvers. They're unity preservers. They're word ministry promoters. Friends, the the Bible gives great freedom in the specifics of how this looks. So, for instance, in some churches, deacons serve as a collaborative body to help assist the elders and to facilitate ministry. In our church, however, that's not how it works. We've appointed men and women to to run point in different areas of, of service. So our deacons shoulder a lot of the administrative heft and responsibility to make sure that that ministry is done well here at the church. You can look inside actually our bulletin inside the back cover to see those men and women and what their diaconates uh, are for, which, which positions they fill. Needless to say, friends, we try as best we can to follow the blueprint that the scripture has laid out. The, the elders, both Steve and I, exercise spiritual oversight of the church. And the deacons, the eight, not the seven, the eight, they assist us, Right? The eight deacons assist us by facilitating practical ministry to ensure that the ministry of the word is prioritized every Sunday and that gospel unity is preserved. As one pastor put it, elders equip for ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. Friends, if that's how our church works, praise God. We will be, by his grace, a healthy church. Friends, I hope you're starting to get a a glimpse of how massively important deacons are. And let me just say to those of the eight that are in the room this morning, to those who serve our church as deacons, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you for the ways that you serve our church and you assist the elders and you free us to prioritize what we need to in the ministry of the word. Deacons, you need to realize that you play a pivotal role here among us. We, we, when we see gospel fruit here in the church, friends in the congregation, we should not merely thank God for faithful elders who preach and teach the word. When we see gospel fruit, we ought to praise God for faithful deacons who quietly allow that word work to be prioritized. Number two, number two, the marks of faithful deacons. Turn back to 1 Timothy 3. We'll spend the rest of our time there. Friends, what strikes us about this list of deacon qualifications is how similar it is to the, to the marks of elders. What we ought to look for in appointing deacons is not first and foremost a skill set, but evident faithfulness to Christ and the church. In verse 8, Paul says that deacons should be dignified. Deacons should be Christians of, of dignified character. They should live virtuous lives worthy of respect. And how does that dignity look in the real world? Well, the rest of verse 8 explains that deacons should be sincere and self-controlled. They should not be double-tongued. That points to a deacon's sincerity. They shouldn't speak out of both sides of their mouth. They should say what they mean and mean what they say. Friends, it's been said that flattery, flattery is saying to a person to their face what you would never say behind their back. And gossip is saying about someone behind their back what you would never say to their face. There's a lot of truth to that. That's what it looks like to be double-tongued, to be a flatterer or a gossip. And the reason Paul leads off with the importance of godly words, friends, is because the Bible consistently reveals that our speech, what comes out of our mouths, is a representation of our heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James wrote that if a person is able to control his tongue, he's able to bridle his entire body. In other words, tongue control, as it were, is the litmus test for overall self-control. Friends, ultimately, a double-tongued person is a hypocrite and a man-fearer. Instead of speech that builds up others, their speech seeks to build up themselves. They're posturers and self-promoters. Friends, because deacons are so often a bridge between the elders and the church in these practical ways, you can can imagine how devastating it would be for deacons to be double-tongued. Agreeing with the elders to their face, but then questioning them to the congregation behind their back. I have no idea what John, Bo, and Steve were thinking. I tried to warn them, and now we're seeing what's happening. Or perhaps they misrepresent the effectiveness of of their service to the elders in order to gain their praise. Friends, a a double-tongued deacon is a powder keg of disunity, ready to be ignited and explode within the church. Instead, friends, we ought to appoint deacons who are genuine and faithful and truthful and humble and sincere. Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about two areas of a deacon's self-control. First, they should not be addicted to much wine. Like elders who are called not to be drunkards, deacons shouldn't be controlled by alcohol or narcotics or any other substance. Notice the mark here, friends, is not... Deacons should not drink wine, but that they shouldn't be addicted to much wine. 
The scripture nowhere prohibits Christians drinking alcohol as such. So we need to be careful that we don't put up absolute stop signs where the Bible doesn't. But friends, the scripture is full of warnings, isn't it? About the dangers of being controlled by alcohol. About the folly of drinking too much. It's a one-way road to disgrace and spiritual ruin. Friends, some of you here in the body may make a personal choice not to drink alcohol, to abstain entirely for personal or family history reasons or other spiritual reasons, and that is fine and well and good. Others of you may, in good conscience, choose to drink in moderation. But but if that's you, the Scripture enjoins you, friend, to glorify God and edify others through that choice. Beloved, I would say this about drinking. If you ever find yourself using alcohol as an escape or as a refuge, that you just have to have it to take the edge off, friends, be careful. Be careful. Many addictions start by the desire to escape reality, the desire to dull the pain. It's idolatry to make anything other than God your resting place. Far from being addicted to much wine, deacons, like all believers, specifically ought to be controlled by the Spirit. Deacons ought to be exemplary in in their ability to rein in their appetites. Paul rounds out verse 8 by saying that a deacon should not be greedy for dishonest gain. You know, throughout church history, deacons have been charged with collecting and distributing funds, often in mercy ministry. And it's really no different for our church. We have actually a deacon entirely dedicated to financial accountability. Deacons manage in our church, manage line items out of our budget and submit expense reimbursement requests all the time. How dangerous it would be to have a greedy, money-hungry, dishonest deacon managing the strings of the purse. It would put the church's finances in peril. So instead of longing for riches, deacons ought to be profoundly content. They ought to be thankful for what God has given them and live happily in the goodness of his provision. Paul transitions in verse 9 a bit. After giving three qualifications negatively, now he lists two positively. He writes, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, now this one actually might raise an eyebrow or two. After all, deacon work is about assisting and serving in ministry. It's profoundly practical. But according to Paul, deacon ministry, although it may be practical, is not a-theological. Deacons ought to know and embrace sound doctrine. Friends, notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say deacons must teach the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In fact, conspicuously absent from the deacon list that's present in the elder list is the qualification of being able to teach. The Bible does not task deacons with teaching. Now, this doesn't mean that deacons can't teach. This morning, uh, KC, one of, our, one of our deacons, our deacons of children's ministry, taught the adult discipleship class, and I'm thankful he did. But teaching, friends, is not an integral part of what it means to be a deacon. Teaching ability is required for elders because elders are tasked with teaching, but it is not required for deacons because deacons are not tasked with teaching as part of their office as a deacon. But friends, just because deacons aren't expected to teach doesn't mean they aren't expected to know and love the word. They are. Specifically, verse 9 says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
Now, friends, by mystery here, Paul doesn't mean something spooky or enigmatic. Rather, he uses mystery here like he does throughout the letters. He's referring to a truth once concealed for ages, but now revealed by virtue of the coming of Jesus Christ in the gospel. He's referring to the glorious salvation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrine that flows out of it. So friends, our deacons here at Redeeming Grace Church ought to know and love and prize the gospel. They must hold it fast. Friends, when you think about this indispensable role that the deacons play in the fabric of a church, how could it be any other way, right? I mean, how incongruent would it be to have church officers that yawn at the scriptures or who are wishy-washy in their grasp of essential doctrines? They may know how to run a spreadsheet. They may know how to use their, their tool belt, but they're inept in the word. Well, friends, no, deacons ought to be men and women who are tightly tethered to the Bible, They ought to be able to discern the true gospel from its counterfeits. They ought to have a clear understanding of the plan of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And they ought to hold tenaciously to the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, A few months ago, I had a conversation with one of our, our brother deacons in the church who told me that he thought that he was much better suited for deacon role than an elder role. He was, he was trying to parse out his own desires, and he admitted that, that he knew that deacon ministry was his lane, but he felt that eldering might not be. And, and frankly, friends, I appreciated this brother's candor and his honesty, and we had a very edifying conversation about that topic. But you know one thing I've always appreciated about this brother deacon who told me that? One thing I've always appreciated is this brother, brother's thirst to learn for his love for the Bible, his eagerness to grow in theological understanding. Even though this this brother doesn't know whether he wants to be tasked as an elder, he's eager to be tasked as a learner. And friends, that's a mark of a great deacon. It's a gospel-hungry Christian. And notice how a deacon ought to hold the mystery of faith. What does the text say? Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, it's not just that the deacon should have an orthodox doctrine, but an orthodox life. Their moral consciousness, their their conscience is clear because they're not only holding the gospel, they're living in light of the gospel they hold. Their lives give credibility to their confession. Finally, the final mark that Paul gives, at least in this section, is a mark whose responsibility is really borne by us, isn't it? By the congregation. Verse 10, and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Friends, what was implied back in verse 6 about elders when Paul said they ought not to be recent converts is now explicitly stated here about deacons in verse 10. Deacons ought to have a proven track record. Friends, we ought ought not to appoint deacons in order to put them on a trial run of service in the church, right? We ought not to appoint those to be deacons who are kind of on the fringes of the church and of church life and ministry in order to kind of draw them back into the center. No, that's not the purpose of deacons. We ought not not to install those who who struggle with basic Christian faithfulness in order to catalyze a a deeper commitment. Friends, don't treat deaconing as a magic amulet for Christian maturity and faithfulness. It does not work like that. 
Instead, friends, we ought to appoint deacons who are already deaconing. We ought to appoint men and women who are already exemplary, already faithful servants of the Lord Jesus and his people. When asked by the elders to serve and help in a specific ministry, these type of men and women don't conjure up all the reasons why they shouldn't or why they don't want to or how that's not going to work for them. In fact, these type of men and women often don't have to be asked at all. They simply see the need and they run to meet the need. They're deacons by nature. In some ways, friends, this is common sense, isn't it? Our Air Force, friends, would never send Joe Schmo, who only has a, a license to fly, in a, fly a twin-engine prop plane, into battle to fly a $100 million F-35 into a war zone. It does not work like that. No, the Air Force spends millions of dollars testing and training men and women for years before flying them or certifying them as a, as a fighter pilot. It's the same way for many professions, whether it's being a doctor or a lawyer or whatever else. Friend, why then would we treat the church of Christ carelessly? Why would we be flippant about whom we appoint as elders and deacons within the household of God? Paul says it's only after enough time has gone by for a person to prove themselves blameless, free from legitimate grounds of accusation, that they should be appointed to serve as a deacon. Friends, this type of deliberate approach not only protects the church from an ungodly deacon, it also protects a potential deacon from being prematurely appointed to an office that he or she is not qualified to have at that time. Okay, so we've seen the tasks of faithful deacons. We've seen the marks of faithful deacons. And now I want us to look at the categories of faithful deacons in verses 11 and 12. All right, put on your thinking caps in this section. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit, okay? In verse 11, Paul is very much still in the vein of talking about the marks of faithful deacons, but it's clear that he makes a transition. He writes, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, at first glance, when reading the English Standard Version, the translation of the Bible that I'm reading from, and preaching from, it seems clear what Paul is saying. Deacons' wives with their husbands must be women of high character. However, friends, it's not actually at all a cut and dry case that Paul is here talking about deacons' wives. In fact, if you're reading the ESV, you'll see a footnote that gives alternative uh, translations at the bottom, and one of those options is women, likewise, must be dignified. Now, now why is that? Well, in the original language that Paul and the biblical authors wrote in ancient Koine Greek, the word for wife is the same word for women. It's the word gene. The, the only way to know whether the author is referring to a wife specifically or to a woman generally when they use the word gene is by the context. In verse 11, Paul simply wrote, ginaikos, the, the plural of gene, ginaikos likewise must be dignified. Friends, in the Greek, Paul gave no possessive pronoun. There's no possessive there in the original text. Translators added that to try to smooth out the sentence according to their interpretation. Literally, it just says, women likewise must be dignified. So the question is, is Paul talking here about deacons' wives or is he talking about a, a subset of deacons, namely women who serve as deacons or deaconesses? Okay, now I know by Delving into these weeds, I'm in danger of losing some of you, okay, or boring you, but hang in there with me, okay? 
In December of 2020, when we reconstituted our church, uh, we put it into our governing documents, a, a certain convictional understanding that the office of deacon is open to qualified women. And I know that was new to some of you. And if you've wondered, friends, where we get this idea from, uh, idea from, I would encourage you to listen up because it's 1 Timothy 3.11. In fairness, here's what those who interpret 1 Timothy 3.11 as their wives say, okay? They'll say that in the immediate context of 1 Timothy 3.11, the word ginaikos is used twice in verse 2 and in verse 12. And in both cases, it's their translated wives, What's more, they'll say, if Paul intended to refer to women deacons, why didn't he write the word deacons, diakonos, after women, to be abundantly clear? Why did he just say women or wives? And those who hold this view will usually point to the structure of the text too and question, why would Paul whiplash back and forth from talking about male deacons in verses 8 to 10 and then female deacons in verse 11 and then back to male deacons in verse 12? Better, they say, to understand Paul's transition to be back and forth from male deacons and then to their wives and then back to the male deacons. Usually, in addition to these textual points from chapter 3, those who hold to a deacon's wives translation often claim that because deacons have authority in the church, women are prohibited from serving as deacons since, after all, 1 Timothy 2.12 prohibits a woman from exercising spiritual authority over men when the church gathers. Now, let me say up front, most of, which, most of what I just have explained, most of these things are not poor arguments. Some have more merit than others, but most are not shoddy arguments. And we may get to heaven someday and find out that the wives' translation was indeed the right one. But I don't think it is. And here's why. Paul uses, I'm going to give you several reasons here. If you need the manuscript later, I will send it to you. Don't feel like you have to write all these down, okay? Number one, Paul uses the word genikos eight other times in 1 Timothy. And all of those instances can arguably be translated woman not, or women, not wives. In fact, even verses 2 and 12 can. Remember from last week, the requirement is that an elder and male deacons be literally, what, a one-woman man. It points to the principle of marital fidelity and sexual purity. It does not demand that it be translated as wife. Second, Paul could have added the possessive pronoun, their genikos, their own genikos, in order to make it clear he was talking about deacons' wives, but that's not what he did. He simply listed the word by itself. Third, in verse 11, in verse 11, Paul uses the same structure as he began the passage with. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Verse 8, followed by three qualifications. Now, verse 11, women, likewise, must be dignified, followed by three qualifications. Friends, it seems like Paul still has in, in mind here, in view, uh, an official office, given those parallels in structure. In fact, if verses 8 to 10 are, are talking about deacons in general, and not male deacons only, then really there's no whiplash at all, is there? Paul simply moves from the broad to the narrow. And frankly, friends, if, if you hold the, the, the their wives translation, I think you also have to admit that Paul's inserting qualifications here about wives in the middle of a deacon's passage would be clunky and whiplashy too. Okay, either option is a bit interesting. Now, to those who say that the office of deacon carries with it an authority, 
that a woman is prohibited from having in the church, I would simply say, please prove that in the Bible. Kindly, I would say that. Please prove that the Bible says that the office of deacon carries with it spiritual authority. Because friends, I don't see that anywhere in the scripture. Nowhere does the scripture say that deacons exercise spiritual authority over the entire church. There's no question, friends, that that deacons, both men and women, will be tasked with exercising administrative authority or mobilizing authority or coordinating authority within the church. But friends, that is a quite different thing altogether from the exercise of spiritual authority. The scripture explicitly connects spiritual authority over the church and the entire church to an elder's teaching ministry. Elders exercise authority through bringing the word to bear on the congregation. But friends, deacons are not required to teach, nor are they required to be gifted as such. They're not tasked with that anywhere in the New Testament. Hang with me. Given that fact, friends, it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible also never explicitly prohibits women from serving as deacons. It does, however, explicitly prohibit a woman from serving in the office and function of an elder. And do you remember the language of, that Paul used in 1 Timothy 2.12? Women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. These are elder tasks, not deacon tasks. What about the argument that if Paul wanted to designate the Ginaikos as deacons, he would have used the word in the verse? Well, I'm just not sold on that because, fact, in fact, friends, I think Paul does explicitly refer to a woman, a woman deacon earlier in the scripture. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 16.1. Paul wrote to the Romans, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diakonos of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever... She, and whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Friends, Paul doesn't say that that this woman, Phoebe, is a servant in general. He says that she's a servant of a specific church, the church at Sincrea. Friends, any other time in the New Testament or the documents of the early church when this type of phrase is used in relation to a specific church, it refers to a specific church office, an official capacity. I very much believe that Phoebe was not just a generic servant, but a deacon of the church at Sincrea sent on assignment to the church at Rome. My final reason that I think this is referring to women deacons, not wives. If Paul meant to list qualifications for deacons' wives here in verse 11, why did he not list the qualifications for elders' wives in verses 1 to 7? Since elders bear spiritual authority over the church, if any of the wives should be spotlighted, you'd think it'd be the wives of elders. But there is nothing said about elders' wives. And of course, friends, this discrepancy vanishes if Paul is not talking about deacons' wives here, but about women who serve in the role of deacon. Now, I am well aware that for some of you, your eyes glazed over about five minutes ago. Okay? I get it. And it's probably okay. I'll own it. But here's what I want to press home to you. Friends, we ought never to promote what the scripture prohibits. So here at RGC, you won't find us promoting women serving as elders since we understand the Bible to prohibit that. And if you think that sounds harsh 
Well, friends, I'd refer you to my sermon from March 20th, in which I tried to make an unharsh case from the Bible about this point. But while we ought not to promote what the Bible prohibits, friends, we also ought not to prohibit what the Bible promotes. Spiritual headship is given to qualified men in the church for the role of elder. But spiritual partnership is given to both men and women in the gospel. And an aspect of that joint partnership in, in the gospel is their ministry together as deacons in Christ's church. Allowing women an, an office that the Bible allows, friends, it actually contributes to the flourishing of the entire church, both men and women alike. It highlights the beautiful, beautiful unity in diversity that the Bible produces in so many areas. But friends, please understand, this, this translation issue here that I've been describing, this is not a gospel issue. I repeat, whether or not a church has women deacons so long as they're servants, not leaders and teachers, this is not a gospel issue. We as elders are firm in our convictions about this, but we are not dogmatic about it. Many godly believers disagree on this. There is ample room for such charitable disagreement within the kingdom of God and even within the body of Christ here at RGC. Now, all that being said, here's what Paul says. Women who serve as deacons or deaconesses are to be no less qualified than all the rest of the deacons. They too, underscore, highlight, they too are to be dignified, not slanderers or double-tongued, but sober-minded. They too are to be self-controlled, faithful in all things. The bar is set just as high for women as for the men. In verse 12, Paul moves on from from the women to the men, and he reiterates, just like he did for the elders, he reiterates the faithful family life that a male deacon should have. If married, a deacon man must be wholly committed to his wife in covenant love. Brothers, that's body, mind, and words. If single, a deacon ought to be a man who controls his sexual appetites through the power of the Spirit. And in his home, if a man has a family, I love how Matt Smethurst puts it, a brother we support in Richmond, Virginia, wrote a book on deacons. He said this, a deacon must manage his family with deliberateness and diligence, thereby training his heart to serve the church in the same manner. I love that. Ought to train his family with deliberateness, brothers, and diligence, training his heart to serve the church in the same manner. All right, we've reached the end. Number four, we've seen the tasks, seen the marks, we've seen the categories. Now let's look at the incentives for faithful deacons. Paul writes, four, here's a why. That's where I get the word incentives or motivations. Four, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons among us, Paul holds out to you two promises that you ought to cling to as motivators for ministry. One's horizontal before men in the church, men and women, obviously before people in the church, Christians, and one is vertical before the Lord, right? As a deacon is faithful to Christ, he or she will receive an increasing standing in the church and an increasing assurance in the faith. Friends, don't get this wrong. Deacons are not glory hogs. I mean, after all, the, the name deacons describes their posture. They are servants. The friends, given this lowly, this lowly posture, even this kind of downward trajectory of the role, isn't this upward promise compelling? 
The service may seem insignificant on a human level, but friends, it is freighted with eternal significance. Serving in the church may seem like it carries no intrinsic value, but God says otherwise. Serving may seem shameful in the world's eyes or menial, but friends, any service in the name of our Lord Jesus is full of honor. Why? Why is this so? Why does God hold out such reward for faithful deacons? Friends, a reward on earth, by the way, that is never promised to elders. You'll never see anything like this promised to elders. Beloved, I think a deacon's promise is so glorious and his or her reward so high because in being noted as a servant of the church, a deacon models how every Christian should live, a life modeled after the humble, servant, humble service of our king. Friends, this week we're getting ready to focus in a special way on the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and then his resurrection In a profound sense, the humility that we see embodied in Jesus' final days, friends, that humility was just the climax of his entire life. As Jerry read earlier from Mark 10, the Son of Man, the great exalted King, came not to be served, but to serve. Literally, Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. And that's the word. And to give his life a ransom for many. Our Lord Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogatives to take on human frailty. He condescended from glory to the lowest place. Jesus Christ was born in squalor and lived in poverty. In his ministry, he served the outcast and the downtrodden and the weak. Friends, when God lived among men, the creator did not crush his creatures. He didn't come to condemn them, but to save them. He didn't come to push us down, but to lift us up. So low was the condescension of our servant king that he became obedient to the Father's will, even to death on the cross. Friends, on Calvary, Jesus Christ not only modeled the ultimate humility, he not only modeled that pattern, he bore the fury of God's just wrath for human pride and selfless love. He died for our self-absorbed sin. Therefore, for this reason, God has highly exalted him. The condescended servant has now ascended to the highest throne. So make no mistake, beloved, serving precedes honor. Suffering anticipates glory. It's the cross before the crown. And if it's this way for the chief deacon, then it is doubtless this way for his underdeacons. The reward, friends, is always found on the path to faithful service. Always. Whether it's a good standing and and a confident assurance promised to deacons of the church, or whether it's the well done, good and faithful servant promised to all who are faithful to the end. Well, friends, may God help all of us to serve eagerly and joyfully in this church. And as we do, let's thank him for deacons who model this service so faithfully among us. Let's pray.